Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas! A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed him once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Kill him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pilate, 
there are decisions that have to be made, made through the course of life that are life-changing and at times there are decisions that you may not realizing that once you make your choices, your choices will actually make you. And as you've come into this place, uh, you've had to make decisions about where you're going to sit. Am I going to sit on the right or am I on the left? And usually I sit on the left, so that means I need to switch it over to the right. Uh, but then you're thinking, well, I'm a little bit confused if that would even matter. And then you're wondering, where's the preacher going to preach from? And, and you have to make a decision about if I sit up front, I'll get a good view. But if I stay there, I'll have to maybe stop about halfway through and take some kind of neck medicine. And then if I sit in the back, however, I won't see as well. And you get the point. And decisions are something that from the time that we wake up to the time that we go to bed are, uh, are the course of our everyday life. Uh, every day you get up and you think, um, should, I, um, should I wake up grumpy or should I wake up happy? Should I eat toast or should I have eggs? And then you go through the rest of the day and you think, should I eat lunch? And if I do, where am I going to eat at? And then as the night begins to approach, you're contemplating, uh, should I uh, read my Bible or should I watch TV? And uh, it just is one succession of decisions after another. Now, many of those decisions are not as critical and life-changing uh, in the magnitude uh, of what they represent in and of themselves. But accumulated over time, they go to shape who we are. And the habits that result from them become a destiny, ultimately, uh, that we can't undo. And if you consider for a moment what type of decision that Pilate is having to make, uh, you realize that there's not one, but actually several choices that are being made in the course of the story. Now, it's told in Luke chapter 23, but it's also found in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 27, and it's referred to in a few other places in uh, Mark and John. But for our purposes, uh, I just want us to consider for a minute about important choices that have to be made. And one of the things that is underscored in this story is the statement that Pilate has to make regarding Jesus and his destiny, and it's... Uh, and it comes from Matthew 27, 22. And in it we read uh, Pilate asking the question, What shall I do with this Jesus who claims to be the Messiah? Now the question that he asks actually isn't his question alone, but it is your question and it is my question. What shall I do with Jesus the Messiah? And the reality is every day we're answering that question in some form as we bring him into a new day that by his grace he's provided for us. And as, um, as we're looking at making decisions and important ones, also consider the fact that every choice that you make has a consequence. Oftentimes, hopefully desirable, but many times because of the position that we're in when we have to make them, they're undesirable and uncertain. Now, as, um, as you and I come into this room, and we're thinking on the horizon is an Easter celebration, we have to consider that before you have a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb, you have a series of events that lead up to that moment.
that are worth pondering for just a little bit as uh, we think about how they relate to our own lives and our own situations. And this series that we're doing called Uphill is, is, is just basically directing our attention to a few things. Last week we looked at how in that upper room there was a, a, a series of events that unfolded there that led to a tightly bound community that for reasons that Jesus understood and they only understood in hindsight uh, did they realize that in order to meet together uh, we would have to serve together, we would have to uh, uh, worship Jesus together, we would take communion together uh, and all of these things serve to be the, the glue for not only them but for us as a church and if uh, one thing that I know about our people, it's always good to hear stories about how uh, a person was sick or a person had uh, a, a, a loss in their family. And it, invariably, I get reports about how cards are given, phone calls are made, and prayers are offered up. And I can only attribute that to the bonding that's happened uh, over the course of the years. And the one thing that um, uh, in this story, as we think about uh, just that that event, we also come to a place where in this room, uh, we had to make a decision about um, a variety of things even before coming to church. Maybe some of you thought, I'm going to turn around and walk out and go back home because I'm just confused. Uh, others have said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see this one through. And I'm glad you did because that, uh, that decision in and of itself said that regardless of a little bit of opposition or uncertainty, I'm going to trust the Lord in the process. But there, in this series of events, were things that occurred where that didn't happen so much. Now, if you saw Pilate up here, um, here's the backstory for what he went through. Jesus is a person who shows up on his radar. Uh, but before that happened, uh, he had been on the radar screen of the religious leaders uh, for, for almost three years. And every time he showed up, it always meant conflict and trouble and, 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 and usually tensions that would escalate. And it got to a place where they finally had to make a decision to eliminate his presence from the, from the entire landscape for the betterment of, for the greater good of everyone that's part of the community. So when they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane and they took him to Annas, who had been the former high priest, and they began to um, make charges against him. Annas deferred the whole conflict to his son-in-law, who was now the high priest, Caiaphas, and Caiaphas, who was younger and just had the emotional energy for that, uh, Annas felt could literally execute the situation in a way that would, once and for all, create the peace that they've been longing for for three years. Now, as Pilate um, is, is, is in the background of this story, not knowing that deliberations are happening that are going to result in this whole thing being thrown in his lap, uh, deliberations that are happening not during the day, but from a period of 1 to 3 o'clock in the morning, and then whenever it becomes clear that they have a game plan in mind, and now we have to leverage the Roman government, so that what they want to do but can't do, they will allow the Roman government an opportunity to do. 
And it was a decision that they wanted to throw at the feet of the one person that they despised almost as much as Jesus, and that was Pilate. Now, you see a person up here conflicted, uncertain about how to manage the situation, primarily because of all the decisions that he'd made uh, in years prior that led him to a place where he did not have a lot of bargaining chips. And he had to ask himself, what shall I do with this Jesus who calls himself the Messiah? And it is the single most important decision in our lives, and it's one that will determine our life spent with God forever or separated from God forever. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It is the difference between life and death. Uh, there is no uh, middle ground in this decision. It's a, it's a flow chart that goes either one way or another. And let's see why, for Pilate, it became such an unmanageable situation. When they brought him to Pilate, he was, um, he was a little bit intimidated by the crowd and their plea to make something happen with this guy. And at the same time, he had a responsibility to judge cases based on what the law said. And that inner tension was coupled with the, the thing that he could do to make himself politically popular with the people or judicially fair, but yet maybe causing him to lose even more social capital. So let's, let's look at Pilate for a minute. Pilate was one of several administrators who were given responsibility to lead in, in provinces that made up the Roman Empire. And there had been a number of uh, people who had performed that role prior to Pilate, and now it was, it was his turn. And whenever he was given that role, I know in the cabinet of Caesar, there was probably some snickers going on because the last place that you would want to be um, stationed administratively was with a bunch of Jewish people that despised you and were constantly uh, inciting revolution and riots. So here he is, dealt this hand, and he's not what you would call a particularly diplomatic leader. His strategy was to go in there, go in there with guns blazing, heavy-handed, and just establish the fact that he was the law. So while other people went in more with a cooler head and, and greater uh, sense of rapport with the people, Pilate went into the environment marching with the soldiers, having at the, at, at the lead of the, of the cohort that was there um, a... Uh, uh, basically an, an array of, um, of images that were propped up on posts that depicted the head of Caesar like a bust. And it was his way of declaring, I, I, I now establish my reign here in the name of Caesar, who is emperor and lord and king. This, this, this incited them so much because in their mind, in their tradition, they thought that if you put anything that was an image of a leader in that way, it was idolatry. And they knew the Ten Commandments, and they knew that anyone who sets up a graven image, uh, it's, um, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's, it's a capital crime. And yet Pilate said, I could really care less about that. 
for their issues. And after he became governor, he decided that he was going to do a civic project and he was going to build this aquifer that would provide hydration for all of the people. And in his genius, he said, the only way that I can underwrite this is to go to the temple treasury and just take money from the treasury. We can imagine how that went over. As he was looting the treasury, the people became very upset and livid about that, and they began to stage riots. And here Pilate is saying, all right, if you want to grumble, then we'll do that. And he had the soldiers go out and just club and beat and, and, and whip uh, those who were inciting the riot and, and basically killed a fair number of people to shut down all of the um, dissension and all of the chaos that they were creating. And when Caesar gets wind of all of this, he's, he's livid. He realizes that he'd sent somebody there who's just messing the whole thing up. And Caesar is not happy about the performance that Pilate has. Now Pilate understands the displeasure of Caesar in this moment, and the people understand the displeasure of Caesar in this moment. And when that midnight little um, confab is happening between Annas and Caiaphas, they're basically saying, this is our opportunity. There, this, this hand will never be given to us again. Not only can we get rid of Jesus through him, but maybe we can get rid of him in the process as well, as he does our dirty work for us. And so they come before Pilate, and they cast him before him, and they say, this guy is causing a lot of problems that I think you need to be aware of. Now they knew that the primary thing that upset them about Jesus the most was the fact that he was a blasphemer. But they also realized that they can't get a lot of traction telling Pilate that Jesus is a blasphemer because he could care less, Caesar could care less, but they did know that if they came up with other charges, perhaps this would go pretty far and also create a squeeze play where Pilate uh, would have no choice to make either a bad decision or another bad decision when it came to his welfare. And, 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 and the reality is, as Pilate is in this place, and as they are uh, uh, getting him uh, to, uh, to, to, to ponder uh, why it is that Jesus needs to be killed, this is, this is really the outcome of that conversation. There were three things. One is, they told him, we have found this man subverting Caesar. What are you going to do about it? And then as they uh, were just building the tension within their charges, they said, and you also know this man opposed taxes that would be given to Caesar. And you know a little bit about taxes, don't you? And as, they, as, as he's starting to feel the weight of the situation, they, they, they go on to say, and you know what? There's one more thing about Jesus. He claims to be the Messiah, the king. And as you know, there is only one king, and that's Caesar. What do you think Caesar's going to do when he finds out that you're allowing this to carry on like it has? And when Pilate steps back and he does the math, he realizes 
He's between a rock and a hard place. Have you ever been there? You have to make a choice, and you're not really sure if you make this one, it's going to come raining down on you. And if you make this one, uh, that will also kill you. Um, when, when I was in South Africa, I, had a, I, I remember having a dilemma. I had been there uh, a year and a half, and I had just heard that they had uh, built a McDonald's on the south end of Johannesburg. Now, honestly, under any other circumstances, I wouldn't have been that excited about it. But having not seen anything American for a year and a half, and realizing that if there are golden arches here, there's something about the familiarity of that. And I thought, at the very least, French fries. But how, how could you also forego two all beef patties, special sauce, less cheese, pickles, onions, on a sesame seed bun? Well, and I'm salivating just driving in the car down there. But I had a conversation uh, a few weeks before about someone from the UK. And they were telling me about the McDonald's opening up. And they said, uh, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but when Chernobyl happened, uh, there are gusts of radioactive material that are blowing towards the UK. And especially in the mountains where a lot of the farming goes on with beef and with, um, uh, with uh, uh, um, uh, lamb and things like that. And I'm starting to think, I know this is sort of a new development. Are these hamburgers perhaps tainted by that? Are they radioactive? I mean, your paranoid mind is just going through all kinds of things, wondering if the food chain has been stopped before these things have been investigated. So what do you do? You have french fries, and you have a hamburger, and then you're thinking, but it could kill me. Well, you know how the dilemmas are. And I'm still here. I'm not glowing. So you know how that decision went. And I did go back some more because I consoled myself with the thought, if we, well, never mind. I was going to say, if something didn't kill me already, it's not going to now. But uh, the sidebar thing about Pilot, though, is uh, the fact that there's a principle in play here that has to do with decisions. And I'm 53. I've made a lot of decisions. And I've made some bad decisions, and I've made some, really, I, I think, good decisions. And one of them, uh, you know, I, I think, as, I, as, I, as I'm going through this message, uh, is, the, is the result of a decision I made 10 years ago uh, to bring my, my wife and my family out here and to... Uh, come into an environment that was uh, very foreign and, 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 and unfamiliar, and yet uh, here I am. And it's, it's a good decision that has resulted in great rapport. But you just don't know when you go into those type of choices. And I've made other choices where uh, in the past I thought it was the thing to do. I uh, went through a couple of doctoral programs and, and I kind of let them slide and let other things take control and I think well, I wish I would have stuck with it and, and, and finished them up. But one thing I do know, past mistakes limit future options. It's not my turn to get a doctorate. It's my turn to pay for kids to get their bachelors. And, you know, maybe when I'm old and gray and uh, I got some free time, I will maybe work on it again. 
But whenever you're Pilate and you've alienated the Jewish people, they're not going to be sympathetic about your dilemma. Whenever you're Pilate and you know Caesar is not happy with you and your retirement and all of the benefits are hanging in the balance and the possibility of even worse things happening, you start to feel the squeeze of the moment. Primarily because past mistakes limit future opportunities. And it's a hard, hard reality that I'd love to share with young people because when you're young, you think you're invincible and you feel like any decision that you make will not have any lifelong consequences. But perhaps you go to college and you don't spend a lot of time in the books and you want to uh, divert your program into something maybe pretty dramatic like, uh, like a, a medical degree and then you realize all of the partying that I did has blemished all of the opportunities I should have been creating in getting good grades and, and having um, a, a good networking relationships. And it begins to sink in, doesn't it? Or when you look at young people who are in high school or junior high and they put things on Facebook and they don't realize that maybe a prospective employer will look at your timeline down the road and say, well, what's that all about? Is that an indication of your character? And, and some of those bells you can unring, but many of them you just cannot. Now, the thing that I like about this room is that it represents not, not just those realities that are hard to realize that we make our choices and our choices make you, but on a higher level, there is a forgiving God who has bloodstained hands that have been pierced brutally with nails as a reminder that the grace that we need is sufficient for whatever we have done. But even with that, knowing that we can stand before the Lord with a clear conscience because of what that blood has done for us, we also know in this world and in the relationships that we have, we can't always recover the ground that we've lost. And so it's critical that we choose, and we choose wisely. Now, Pilate had a lot of drama and a lot of grief because he honestly was foolish. And the writer of Proverbs said, He who walks with the wise grows wise. However, the companion of fools suffers harm. And it's a principle that is enduring. I, I, I look at... Um, his dilemma, and I see some of the mistakes that came out of this decision tree that he had, because he had limited future options, and he wanted to manipulate his way out of it. Now, have you ever had a dilemma and you're thinking, oh, I, there's got to be a way I can just sort of get around it and not have to face it head on? I found that you, you, you typically can't, especially in leadership. You just got to walk right into the, into the fire. But here's, here's his thought process. Pilate's looking at the situation. He's looking at his hand. And he's saying, okay, here's what I can do. I can just dismiss the case. You know what? This is trivial. I'm just not even going to go there with you guys. Go home. Well, what we found after he said, I find no basis for a charge against this man, is the crowd said, we're not going to let him off the hook. 
we're gonna, we're gonna, we want his blood. And in verse five of, of Luke chapter twenty-three, when Pilate uh, uh, heard them say, he stirs up the people, teaching them throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Immediately he thought, oh Herod, 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 Herod has the power to take care of this. Herod's in Galilee right now, uh, at, and, and he's he's not very far away. He's actually he's actually in town uh, from Galilee. And after inspecting Galilee, we read historically, and as he comes into Jerusalem, it's just like a light bulb goes on. I can just pass it off onto him. And so he sends them away, and they take him before Herod. And Herod is looking at the situation. And we read what uh, the outcome of that discussion is in verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belongs to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Herod was honored to be brought into that circle. Um, but after his soldiers didn't get anywhere with him, ridiculing him, mocking him, beating him, they decided that... Uh, no, it's your problem, Pilate. You handle it. So Pilate's thinking and thinking, and he realizes, oh, there's an option. There's one option. Do you know what this option is? It's a great option. It's amnesty. Every Passover, it's been within the tradition for time immemorial that in order to establish goodwill between the overseeing government, which is usually a foreign nation, and, 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 and the people, uh, they they, they want to just uh, show that they are compassionate at some level and they want to release a prisoner. So he thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give them an option. It's either choice A or choice B. Choice A, of course, Jesus. Choice B, Barabbas. Now, when you say Barabbas, people have the skin uh, starting to crawl and the hair on the back of their neck starting to rise because he's just a vicious, vicious human being. Pilate knows that. And he thinks they're not going to want to take Jesus over that guy. And this is what we, uh, what we read in verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time they had a well-known prisoner who was named Jesus Barabbas. Any idea what that means? Jesus Barabbas? Barabbas is Jesus' common name, like John, at that, in that period of time. But Barabbas means son of the Father. You have son of the Father, and you have Jesus, the Messiah. That is, the, the, the king who is the son of God. And surely, they'll, they'll, they'll kill the riffraff before they'll, they'll kill this guy. And he's doing all of this calculating in his mind, and and he's like, all right, I'm going to throw it back on you. Who do you want to be released? Jesus or Barabbas? And when they said, give us Barabbas, it was almost like the blood started to drain out. And he's having to consider this as maybe his last option. And so he says, what has he done that compares to a murderer, 
to somebody who's done untold things to your own countrymen. Why is Jesus, the Messiah, such a bad person in your mind? And they wanted Jesus. The crowd had already made their decision, and there was no other option. Pilate had enough information to actually acquit him based on what had just occurred. But he gave in to the crowd's demands. John or Mark says it in Mark 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Now let's just stop there for a minute. How many of us can look back on our lives and say, I made a choice because I wanted to satisfy the crowd. I made a choice because I wanted to satisfy my peers. I made a choice because I wanted to please someone even though I knew it was a bad choice. And when it comes to making decisions, oftentimes there are consequences for not making a choice in favor of the crowds, but there are even greater lasting consequences of choosing to do what you know isn't the right thing. And maybe as you're pondering this event today, maybe you've made those decisions. Or maybe you're being pressed by someone around you to make a decision that you know isn't the right one. And you're looking for a place to get some leverage on the situation. And you know what I've found is sometimes it's, it, it seems expedient to just please somebody based on the fact that it's sketchy. But every time you do that, you degrade a little bit of yourself. The principles that you have become a little less defining of who you are. And our lives, every day, are just a series of choices that either move us in a good direction or ultimately cause us to wind up in a place we never thought we would be at. And I can't tell you as a pastor how many times I've talked to people who said, you know, I was doing fine, raising a good home, started hanging out with the wrong people, they started influencing me in ways that, uh, regrettably, uh, I, I caved into. And then all of a sudden, I'm finding that my health is deteriorating through alcoholism and drug abuse. The marriage that I had that started on so much hope as a foundation has now uh, deteriorated to the point where uh, we're no longer together. And as I'm looking at that, I realize economically everything is circling the drain. How in the world did I wind up here. And I could probably say, based on those experiences I had with those individuals, it was really the result, not of one decision, but a series of decisions that you habitually carried on making that you knew were wrong, and you thought, it'll never come back on me. And yet, here we are. The Jews, whenever they were putting Pilate in the squeeze plague, are also complicit because of all the times that they have to be forgiven would not Passover be that one moment where the death angel has come into the homes of the firstborn uh, uh, male and every house that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost was spared the destruction of those children and every one of those people who were followers 
of God through Moses in that moment found their lives not only delivered from the death angel, but were given a destiny and a miraculous deliverance into that destiny of the promised land and life with God. And as they're thinking about all the good things that are a reminder, and they're celebrating Passover, they're forgetting, really, what Passover is all about. During Passover, they're saying, murder him, kill him, crucify him. Somehow they forgot that when you look around the people that offend you, Passover and the New Testament version of that, the Lord's Supper, is God's way of saying, how can you not forgive knowing that I've forgiven you? And it's a reminder that the decision that we make when we're awakened to that reality means that we have to take the bitterness that we have towards others and we have to put that on the cross and say, Lord, thank you for taking the bitter heart that I have and melting it down and allowing me to know instead your great love. Well, Pilate's decision is one of those things <coughs> that <clears throat> none of us can really avoid. The question is, what, 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 what do I need to do in response to this Jesus who is the Messiah. And you have to face this decision squarely and head on, knowing that it's going to cost you. But the cost is so worth it. The pain of identifying with Jesus by dying to yourself and experiencing new life, starting with baptism, and the changes that come about are well worth the trouble that it'll initially create for your life. But sometimes we don't want to take that part. It reminds me of the story of the, of the guy who was going to buy life insurance. And he went to a, an agent, and the agent was asking him uh, about his parents, uh, mother and father, uh, when they had died. And he said, well, my mother, she passed away at age uh, 41 from, from cancer. And, and, he said, and the, and the uh, agent said, well, what about your father? And he said, well, yeah, he died at 43 of a heart attack. And then the agent looks at him and says, tears up the, 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 the policy and says, no one's going to give you a policy with that kind of uh, genetic history. And he said, good luck. So he goes to uh, another set, uh, life insurance agent and the agent begins to ask him the standard questions. And one of the questions was, um, how, old is, how, old was your, how old was your father when he passed away? And he said, well, uh, my father was 93 when he passed away. And how did he die? A mountain climbing accident. And uh, so, you know, the sake of life, at least it's interaction here. And then uh, the guy looks at him and he said, Well, what about your mother? She, she, she's still living. No, she died at, at age 91. And, and then he's writing this down. What, what, what was the cause of her death? Uh, she was giving birth to my younger, my younger sister. So, you know, as unreality oriented, as that is, it certainly underscores what it is that we are doing when we make decisions, especially about eternal things, that have such a great consequence. Church is actually an event every Sunday where we have to make it. It's a, it's a decision time. 
we are looking at our lens through kind of a telescope, the here and the now, and the not yet that remains uh, uh, to come. And I wonder how you've processed that. It could be tomorrow, it could be 50 years from now that that event happens. But in a lot of ways, it's always crunch time. The Final Four is coming up, and many of the, 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 the games that happen usually occur as a result of uh, one or two points uh, difference between the winning team and, and, the, and their opponent. And in that final few minutes where the strategies are being made and the decisions of the outcome of the game are being formulated and the result of those decisions are either creating the opportunity for victory or defeat. And you see the intensity of that moment, but what you don't realize is all that is is a symbol to illustrate the intensity of this moment. And I, and I have to ask, where are you in this moment? Now, most of you, I think, in this room have probably had an established relationship with the Lord for a very long time. Some of you, maybe not. Maybe you've never said, I made a decision for you, Lord Jesus, and I want you to be my Savior, and I want to declare you as the Messiah, and I'm willing to face the pain in order to know the gain that comes on the other side of it. And God has given you this moment so that you can look at that crossroad and say, I choose Jesus. Would you bow with me? Father, you have given us the story to dramatize the magnitude of our choices. To underscore just how critical it is for us to answer the question, what should I do with this Jesus who claims to be the Messiah? And we learn, Lord, through the experience of others, and we grow wise. Or we learn, Lord, through the school of hard knocks, and we arrive at the conclusion that you are the way and the truth and the life. I just pray for everyone here that as that decision is being made, that your grace would flow into every life, that they would know the boundlessness of your great love. They would find forgiveness and cleansing of choices made that haunt us at night and cause us to lose sleep. They would receive from you that one gift that surpasses exceedingly abundantly beyond all gifts. And that is the gift of eternal life through your son Jesus. Lord, I don't know who you're working on in this room, but as they are making decisions for you, just enable that decision to be the one that would put a smile on your face and cause us to move forward with a new perspective, a different pace, and a vision for life that went from just putting our time in to having a true purpose in you. Lord, bless our church here and those who are connected and those who are just checking us out that we could, we could be those people that you envision us to be, that make the choices, that bring you honor 
and that show that the character of Christ is alive in us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.